Hi, I'm Japheth de Oliveira. I'm the senior pastor at Bold Adventist Church. By way of a quick introduction, you're going to be hearing next either a message, a sermon, or a lecture. And I'm hoping that you're going to be blessed by this, or you're going to be challenged by this message, or you're going to be called to some kind of action. Just in case, I would like to encourage you to connect through our church app or through our website, or maybe even pop in for a visit and just come and say hello to us. We'd love to join you on this journey of faith that you're on right now. So for now, uh, just uh, open your Bible, uh, keep your mind super sharp, and may your heart be open as well and receptive to an encounter with Jesus Christ. Until then, uh, live love and look after each other. You shouldn't have any trouble understanding this, friends, for you know all the ins and outs of the law, how it works, and how its power touches only the living. For instance, a wife is legally tied to her husband while he lives, but if he dies, she's free. If she lives with another man while her husband is living, she's obviously an adulteress. But if he dies, she is quite free to marry another man in good conscience, with no one's disapproval. So, my friends, this is something like what has taken place with you. When Christ died, he took that entire rule-dominated way of life down with him and left it in the tomb, leaving you free to marry a resurrection life and bear offspring of faith for God. For as long as we lived that old way of life, doing whatever we felt we could get away with, sin was calling most of the shots as the old law code hemmed us in. And this made us all the more rebellious. In the end, all we had to show for it was miscarriages and stillbirths. But now that we're no longer shackled to that domineering mate of sin and out from under all those oppressive regulations and fine print, we're free to live a new life in the freedom of God. But I can hear you say, if the law code was as bad as all that, it's no better than sin itself. Hmm. That's certainly not true. The law code had a perfectly legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, moral behavior would be mostly guesswork. Apart from the succinct surgical command, you shall not covet, I could have dressed covetous up to look like a virtue and ruined my life with it. Don't you remember how it was? I do perfectly well. The law code started out as an excellent piece of work. What happened, though, was that sin found a way to pervert the command into a temptation, making a piece of forbidden fruit out of it. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was used to seduce me. Without all the paraphernalia of the law code, sin looked pretty dull and lifeless, and I went along without paying much attention to it. But once sin got its hands on the law code and decked itself out in all that finery, I was fooled and fell for it. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, throwing me headlong. So sin was plenty alive 
and I was stone dead. But the law code itself is God's good and common sense, each command sane and holy counsel. You guys enjoy that text? Hmm, yeah, hmm. Paul, oh, we're going to be there all the way through to Christmas. And you're thinking, really? <laughs> I know. The letter of Romans. <laughs> Interesting. Well, here we go. I'm going to let you into a secret. You like secrets? Yeah, I know you do. All right. <laughs> part of the privilege of being a, a pastor and uh, being part of a church family is that every single comment every single phrase, every single thing that you share uh, is actually personal. Everything you say to me is personal. Now, they do train us. They train us to say, please make sure you don't take what people say to you personal, right? Please make sure that when they speak to you that it's not you, it's not about you, and make sure that it just washes off your back and, and you know, make sure that you just focus that it's not about you and just let it, on, you know, let it go by. And they do teach us this all the time. They're supposed to, when you go to bed at night, just let it go away and don't think about it and don't let it be part of your life or any part of that kind of like cognizant part inside there. You can even blame you know, the systems. You can blame the, the policies. You can blame the structure. You can blame whatever you want, but just don't take it personally. But the truth is, that as soon as you stop caring as a pastor, as soon as you stop allowing it to be personal, and you start ignoring the journeys of everything that's going on, you start to shut down all the stories of the people's lives as they're sharing it. So, quite honestly, everything you say to me, I take it personally. I do, I do. Every single thing you say to me, I take it personally. Steve today came and said, hey, Pastor, did you notice the spots on the carpet? I take it personally. I do. That way, uh, it really is soul-crushing. It really is. So how do I prevent it from becoming soul-crushing that I don't shrivel up and just rock in my chair all day long? I mean, how do I stop it from just destroying myself all the time? Well, what I try to do, what I try to do is, it's a really crazy idea, I try to follow Jesus. <laughs> I don't always. I try to follow Jesus. And, and the thing is, when I'm in sync with Jesus, it really is possible to take everything personal and actually hold it in tension, and it's okay. But when I'm not in sync with Jesus, you, you felt my responses. <laughs> I know you have, um, because you mentioned it to me. Uh, and so that's the difficulty, right? Is that when I'm not in sync with Jesus, my responses are not exactly uh, Christ-like and not exactly the best way forward. But when I am in sync with Jesus, I'm actually able to kind of think, say to myself, well, let me just uh, ask myself, what motivated that comment? What motivated that reaction? What really motivated that request? What motivated that response? What's behind all of this? Let me see if I can just part all of that and get beneath it. I share this with you because I want you to understand that what I have to share with you today and next week is not easy, all right? And I don't want you to take it personal. Ah, now you're kind of uncomfortable. I know, you're like, what? I know, I know, Austin, it's okay, man, it's all right, it's all right. Baby face, I know, I know, it's okay. 
Austin said, I look like baby face. It's, it's all right, it's all right. I didn't take it personal. It's all right. <laughs> but I, I really hope that you will, um, that you will, when you question my motive, and I know you're going to question my motive with the message that I share today and next week, if anybody turns up next week, um, that you will understand that the text is where I responded to the text, I took the passage, and I said, God, what is this text really talking about? All right? And where does this text actually lead us? And uh, what can we actually speak to and how do we apply this? And what does this text actually mean for us today? And, and how do we actually unravel what Paul is really talking about when he comes to the fruit that he's really talking about? And what is this raveling that actually causes a little bit of discomfort? Because chapter 7 is one of the most difficult and controversial chapters in the whole book of Romans. Last week, last week, in a connect group, and just so you don't, in case you don't know, and we've got several people who are brand new to church today, um, a connect group, they take place after worship. So we have our worship services first, and then we have connect groups for all ages. And our connect groups is where we connect with God, we connect with each other, and we study the Word of God. I digress a little bit, and I come back to it. So last week, in one of the connect groups, uh, someone mentioned that they were going to invite a friend to come to church. And they said to them, hey, I'd like you to come and join us. Come to my church. Come and enjoy my church. And their friend said to them, oh... I don't want to go to church because at church, uh, they, you know, they talk about sin all the time. And I, I don't want to go to church because they talk about sin. Well, this person said to them, oh, you don't have to worry about that in Boulder. In Boulder Church, they never talk about sin. So um, I was kind of perplexed by that. Um, and then the friend said, that is until about now, because the series is called Sinners, and, uh, but you know, you should still come along anyway. So I wasn't quite sure how to respond to that particular moment, because you know, it's not about me, so I thought about motive, I thought about what's behind it, and uh, I wanted to share a few observations. Yes, there is a common fear, there is a common fear that people have about church that we only talk about sin. So I would rather be known, I would rather be known that if you know anything about church, that we actually do talk about Jesus. We do, right? And that Jesus will confront you about sin. Mm. Yes, he does. He does. And, and here's the thing about it, that, that sin, number two, that sin, while we may not call it sin all the time, we actually do call it things like evil. We call it things by its name, by Satan, and we call it things that are, are temptations, and we call it things that we face and battle. So we have other names, and sometimes, occasionally, we do call it sin as well. But what is, number three, what is the purpose of church? It's not just to make this world a better place. And don't get me wrong, I do think we should make the world a better place. We should care for everything around us. But really, the purpose of church is not just to make the world a better place. The purpose of church is to actually proclaim the good news that Jesus is going to return and that he is eradicating sin and death will be no more. And that is good hope. And that is different from just a moral difference of ethics. It's different from just making the planet a nicer place to live in. This is actually a radical different message. It's a shift. So, are we uh, a safe place? Oh yes, that was very encouraging. <laughs> I would hope so, <laughs> that we're a safe place. Safe place enough, enough, enough for us to be able to wrestle through this controversial chapter of Romans chapter 7. I certainly hope so. And for those of you who are brand new, I just, today, first time at church, I just want you to, to go with me on this journey, 
to hear with an open heart, an open mind, and to listen carefully and to process this with God. You've got questions after this, please come back. For those of you who are regulars, our partners and our members who've been here before and you understand my motive, you understand what we exist here as a community, you'll understand what I'm going to be weaving through this text and where I'm taking us. Paul, through the whole book of Romans, through this entire letter here, he has one message. And this one message that we've been weaving through this entire sermon series from the beginning as we're coming through here and we're in the middle right now, he basically says this. I want to let you know that God has delivered a Messiah. The Messiah is Jesus, his son, and he is coming here with this incredible news, and he wants to let you know that this story has been taking place through the entire First Testament, through the Father, through the Son, and through the Spirit, through the Trinity, and they've been in conversation with Israel all this time. And this conversation they've had is not a private conversation. It's a conversation the whole world should know about. You think it's about Israel? It's not. It's about the universal story of redemption. And while they're having this conversation, everybody's welcome into the kingdom, and I want you to know this story, and it comes through the book of Romans. So, is that controversial? No, that's not controversial, until you understand that really, it is deeply controversial because it says there's only one religion. There's only one God, and there's only one way, and it's through Jesus, and nothing else counts. And then you get into chapter 7, where Paul, next week, as we get into this, next week he's going to refer to this guy, this man that struggles through here. And, and we all know about this famous text, right? And maybe you've heard this famous text, and it comes up with these lines, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. And we all struggle through that, and, and we love that text, right? Some of us will even say it to our spouses. Hmm, that's what I tried, you know, Romans 7. That's me, I tried, but I didn't do it. <laughs> Romans 7, what can I say? The difficulty is, people don't know what that text is really about. Is that a person before they followed Jesus? Well, that makes sense. I mean, they mess up every day before they follow Jesus. Or is this a person after they followed Jesus? Well, that makes sense as well, right? Because after we follow Jesus, we've got a broken nature anyway, so we still fail. Or is it just a metaphor? A metaphor for Israel, a metaphor for us as a people, that even when we are connected with the law, we struggle, and God says there's another solution. So next week, we're going to have to unpack all of that and see all of this, but there is something deeper that happens, and we often skip these first few verses that Jackie read for us in the message paraphrase at the beginning here, that just kind of felt like, where is this text going with these two metaphors? The one word that the English Standard Version has, the message didn't have, but the English Standard Version has is the coordinating conjunction is the word or. Or. Now, loads of versions of the Bible do not have this, but the English Standard Version, the, the, North, uh, the NSAB also has this, or they include it from the manuscripts because Paul's basically saying, you heard about slaves to righteousness in chapter six and slaves to, to evil, but, but then he says, Oh, oh, I could tell you this other metaphor. It's like he kind of got excited and he enters into chapter seven. And he says, oh, I could tell you about this one. And you know what? It's so straightforward. You're going to believe it anyway. You're just going to accept it. Let me tell you. Or it could just be like marriage. And he just launches into this because he knows that this metaphor is going to be accepted. He says, look, it's about marriage and remarriage. Let's just say you're in a bad marriage. And the only way out of this bad marriage, it's death. 
Not that you arranged the death, just FYI. This was not Paul's solution. So just don't read the text and say, aha, I now know what the Bible said. The marriage isn't working out. I just need to arrange this. No, no, Paul says the death took place outside. It happened. But because of death, you then were then excused from this bad marriage, and then you married again. And this time, you were motivated by love. And because you were motivated, motivated by love, you have at last a good marriage. So Paul's like, yes, or you could just have one of those marriages. Instead of the marriage, it's just a contractual agreement where you just kind of came together and like, hmm, we're married. No, this was actually a marriage motivated by love. That's the kind of relationship that you should have with God, and that produces great fruit. Or, or he says, oh, or there could be another one. I've got another idea. The Ten Commandments, let me bring that up again, because he mentions the law several times, but this one here, he specifically mentions the Ten Commandments. He says, look, my friends, you know, you know the Ten Commandments, you know, love God, remember the Sabbath, don't kill, and everybody's like, yeah, I get all those. And then he says, but there's Exodus 2017, he says, what about that one? You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's, and you're thinking, I don't own any of those. But... He says, really, deep down, it's the coveting issue that's really yours. And that's your issue. Because who knows whether you're really coveting anything? Only you and God. That's why at the last commandment, number 10, there's something significant behind it. He says, that's the one that you can hide behind. Because all the others publicly you can check off and just say, yes, 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 yes. But this one, you need to make sure that you're motivated by love. It sounds great. In Romans 8, he's going to explain, in a few weeks' time we'll hear this, how Paul says you can only do this when you're unpacked by the power of the Spirit. But for now, he's driving really hard and saying, your fruit has to be good. Your fruit has to be good. So, I have loads of questions. I looked at this text and I have loads of questions. And I included a lot of these questions inside the uh, connect group sheets for various uh, connect groups that are taking place. Included some of those from Mark Wittes, this Pastor Mark Wittes, who wrote the Daily Walk this week as well. And so the connect groups can process this. But I have one in particular, and it's in your worship guide. I decided to include only this one because it's so long. Um, I wrote this one, so it's my fault that it's so long. But, but here's the way that I thought I'd break this down. And, and I think it's pretty significant because I think it actually applies to how we understand this fruit and what the fruit really means for us today. So if you open up your worship guide, you'll see this recalibrate question there. And you may want to keep your worship guide open because I'm going to add two subsets to this that you can write yourself. If a tree only produces bad fruit, is there something wrong with the DNA of that tree? Do you understand that? Can the tree be repaired or should it be destroyed and a new tree planted? And what does that tree represent? Your walk with God, your church, your career, a friendship. What role does the power of God have in repairing those trees, these trees? You with me? People quit all the time as they just look at the fruit and they give up on the tree. You ever eaten like you've got a bowl of fruit or you, you go, this is really horrible, you go to Safeway and you, you see the grapes and you think to yourself, 
should I buy the grapes? How do you know if the grapes are to be bought or not? Do you, are you one of those people that thinks to yourself, well, you know what I should do? I should take one grape, and I should test that one grape, and if that grape tastes good, therefore I can buy that, right? Do you feel that you're stealing when you take that one grape, or do you feel that Safeway should actually pay for you to test out all those grapes? Ah, the dilemma, the dilemma. I know. And then you're thinking to yourself, but I only tasted that one. I don't know. Maybe I should test this other one over here. That one looks better. And so you're testing all these things out, and you're thinking, now I've eaten enough. I feel like I don't need to buy any. Ah, the dilemma that you have. Or do you just grab the entire basket and think to yourself, well, they said they're good. I will trust them. And you take them home, and you take one, and you're like, oh, they're horrible. They're placid. They're watery. They're genetically modified. I don't know. They're false grapes. And then what do you do? You don't eat those grapes again. Do you ever go buy grapes again? No, never again. This is what people do. They just buy the grape and they're like, oh, you buy a watermelon. Oh my goodness, what a disaster. I went with my son the other day and my son said, you should do the test. I said, what's the test? You know, where you flick the watermelon. I'm like, what's the, what's the test do? You flick it and you hear, hear what? The watermelon talking back to you? <laughs> uh, I'm a good watermelon. I don't know, I flick it and I'm like, I don't know. I was like, I have no idea. We go home, we crack it open, and it's like, ah, it's a good one. Ah, it's a bad one. I have no idea. You, you mean the ones they have open, they probably cracked open 50 of them to find the perfect one. And like, okay, let's put this one out there, and this will convince all of them that all of them are perfect. No, you have no idea. I mean, we could cut all of them open and then find one. That would be reasonable. So the difficulty is that we look at this fruit and we think to ourselves, the fruit is bad, and so we, we give up on this. It's not that they've had one piece of fruit though, right? It's that you've had lots of pieces of fruit and you've had it over many seasons and so it seems that the tree is producing the bad fruit all the time. So you think to yourself, let me just give up on the tree. Let me just throw it away. Maybe you have been that person that's met not one, not two, not three, but maybe you've met a whole series of Christians and you think to yourself, oh my goodness me, those Christians, they're just so inconsistent I just can't stand them. I just don't like these Christians. I'm just, I'm done. And so because of this, and because they're not the clearest, sharpest tools in the shed either, you know, just not up here. They're not, not connected. So you think to yourself, something seems broken. So you think to yourself, I'll drop the whole tree of Christianity. The fruit is not good, and you throw it away. Who wants to belong to that fruit? Or maybe you hear or you watch over time and you hear about your company and you look at the employees and the employees are constantly complaining about how things are not working well and the boss is not good and this is not good and the environment's not good and you think to yourself, who wants to be part of that? So you leave the company tree to fade away in its own forest and you think to yourself, I can't support that company to be successful. It's disgusting, it's horrible. So you leave the company and you let that company fade away because the fruit that the company's producing is not good, so the tree is worth discarding. You read about the rising rates of divorce. And you read about the amount of people that are in counseling and in therapy. And you think to yourself, well, I don't know if I really like the marriage tree. Maybe what I'll do is I'll drop that ancient tree of marriage and I'll just start with the plastic plants. Because that doesn't take a lot of maintenance. We'll just cohabit and live together. That should work out fine and you adopt that one. We make judgment calls all the time about the fruit because we've experienced really bad fruit. Wouldn't you agree? It's easy. It's easy. Especially for some of us who will just take one grape and say throw the whole thing away. 
Some of us had the courage to go back to the store and buy or return. I can't stand those people. I returned the entire, oh, this, this grapes, I needed another bunch. But some of us struggle through this. When we see some of the fruit is bad, it's when we taste the fruit for ourselves, it's hard to imagine the next piece will actually be okay. But the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul says that when you're connected to God, you are supposed to bear good fruit. When you're connected to God and in sync with God, you are supposed to produce great fruit. And good fruit comes because of the power of the Spirit, not just because of your flesh. And this is really important. So if you have your Bibles, you can pull them out in your pews, they're in front of you. And remember that if you're brand new, just FYI, I'll let you know this, you can take those Bibles home at page 1044. So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, which is our passage for today. Romans chapter 7, page 1044 in your pew Bibles. You can open up uh, your own Bible, read it in your own translation, but I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. And this is what Paul is trying to drive home when he comes to the fruit here. He says here in page 1044 in the pew Bibles here, for while we were living in the flesh, and he's going to mention this a few more times, our sinful, sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So he says this fruit that you're doing on the flesh is that you bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What he's trying to say here is this, and Paul talks about this flesh a lot. In this particular passage for today, he's going to mention the flesh once, but he's going to bring up is that my battery? I wonder. No, it's not. It's just me. Paul, Paul's going to bring this up 23 times in the Roman text here. He's going to bring up the word flesh 23 times. I'm going to say to them, I want to bring this up to you 23 times because I want to let you know that this is significant. In this chapter, he's going to bring it up three times. Two more times next week, you'll see about this. And then in Romans chapter 8, he's going to bring it up 10 times alone, which is in a few weeks' times we'll talk about this. And when he talks about flesh in a few weeks' time, he's going to refer to it as sinful nature. He's going to refer to it as sinful man, a sinful mind, as the NIV translates as well, all based on context. Why is he doing this? Because he wants to compare the flesh with the spirit. He says, when you are with the flesh, when you are with your human body, when you are with who you are, just as you are, you behave a particular way, you produce a particular fruit. But when you are in sync with Jesus, when you are in sync with the spirit, your fruit is different. And it is amazing. And your tree can be changed. For if you can get to the root of it, if you can get to the motive of the heart, your motive can be love. So, I have just two areas that I want to talk to you about today, all right? And that's why I asked you right at the beginning that this is a safe place. And I said that right at the beginning, that um, I take everything personal, and I expect that you will take this personal as well. But I hope that you will question my motive as I question your motive, and I hope that you understand that these two areas that I bring up these two questions that I raise to you are driven because of my heart for you as you raise questions to me all the time for your heart for me and for this church as well. And these are the two areas that you may want to write in your worship guide as the subsets of the question that I had today. What will we release and how do we relate? Are you with me? What will we release and how do we relate? If you're brand new, you may not understand the context of where I'm going with this, but as I expand this, you'll understand a little bit more. 
what will we release and how do we relate? So what will we release? When you think about this church and when you think about the church, do you sense passion? When you think about the church, do you see us as an agent for changing the entire universe or do you think about us just focusing on ourselves? When you think about the global church, the Seventh-day Adventists, our particular tribe, do you agree with the mission of the global church or do you bicker with the mission of the global church? When you think about our local church here in Boulder, are you engaged with the direction here or are you uh, oblivious to what's going on? I appreciate the 60 plus people every single week that take to make sure that our worship comes together, our connect groups come together, our camp stands us downstairs, along with all the fellowship lunches and the phenomenal school with Vista Ridge, the amount of work that it takes to actually pull off an incredible A-class education and the relationships that they build up with the kids. It's amazing the amount of work that comes together to pull all this off. But I need to be pretty straightforward with you because we're safe space, right? And I can speak truth here directly to you. Will you release your tithes and your offerings? Will you? To support what we're called to do? Or is it that you just don't like the fruit that the church produces? And so you hold back your tithes and your offerings. And that's why you don't support the church. Um, I get up every single day and I think about church and people or every single minute, I just, I love it. I, I mean, I know it's a tremendous privilege to be a pastor in this church, in this community here, and I understand what a great honor it is. But my frustration, my pain, and my anguish is that there are just too many, too many that are slipping through my fingers. And when I say slipping through my fingers, I mean family. There's just too many of the family that are slipping through the fingers. I'm texting people this morning because I don't have time and the elders don't have time and you don't even have time to connect with all those that are slipping through our fingers week in and week out. As new people are coming to church every single week, new people who've got other things going on can't make the church and we don't have time to connect with every single person. And it's our responsibility to take care of family. We should be taking care of family. If you would return a faithful tithe and offering. Uh, actually, let me rephrase that. For some of you, for some of you, if you would return a faithful tithe and offering, it would turn this church upside down. And then for some of you, if you would just start to give. Did you hear the difference? If you would just start to give a tithe and offering, not even a faithful tithe and offering, just start to give a dollar. Just start to give a tithe and offering. We could turn this church mission upside down. I started to go, I don't know who gives, what they give, the amounts, but I started to go through the list of those who give and those who don't give. And I was just kind of blown away by how many people don't give. Zero to tithe or to offering. They come week after week. They belong and they commit and they connect and they support and they volunteer. And they don't support with their tithes and offerings. And I'm just kind of like, is something, is something going on with the fruit of the church? Is there, is there something disconnected with the fruit of the church here? 
But this is the problem that we've had from the very beginning, right? The problem with Cain in the Garden of Eden. When he came to God and said, God, I got my own offering that I want to give you. I'll decide what I give you. I know you requested this, but I will choose how I give you my offerings, and I will choose my method. And God said, actually, I chose a system of sacrifice, and there is some consequences with this, and there are some implications with this, because I understand the motive behind it, and I understand what you're attached to, and I need you to actually get with it. That's why I love the story of Jesus with the widow's might or the widow's penny, because he says, blessed to this woman who's giving her penny to the church. He says, yes, to the church that you do not understand women. Yes, to the church that you do not understand salvation. Yes, to the church that oppresses the poor. Yes, to the church that's going to crucify me. Blessed are you for giving your penny to that church. Because it's not about the church, it's about the motive of your heart. Do you love God? Will you respond? And will you release with what you have? So you need to ask yourselves, will you release, my friends, your tithes and your offerings? Is your motive with your love? And can you give from your heart? We need to be able to do this because in this church here, I can tell you this, we need more staff and we need more pastors and we need to reach beyond ourselves and we need to fill in the gaps and we need to connect with the family. And we're not doing a great job. You may think we're doing a phenomenal job. I can tell you that I weep about the things that we miss out all the time. Second question, safe space. No? Yes, I hope so. How do we relate? How do we relate? When you look at the fruit, and when you look at the type of relationships you have, you've got to ask yourself, first, do you have any friends? And I know some of you are saying, actually, I don't have any friends. And I'm saying, there's 7.6 billion people on the planet. You can find a friend. They can find you. Maybe the problem is not them. Maybe the problem could be with you. And you can find somebody, all right? There are people out there, you can find friends, we can help you connect with each other. What's holding you back from making a friend? Is there any relationship that cannot be repaired? Right, just think about that. Maybe you don't want to answer that one. Is there any marriage that cannot be repaired? I know some of you don't want to answer that, so let me ask you this instead. Are there any marriages that you don't want to repair? I know what the answer is to that, yes. <laughs> Yes, of course people feel this about marriages. They feel that marriages should not be repaired, and they feel that marriages have created some kind of bad fruit inside there, and so they push back against that. And it's because we have forgotten what marriages really are about, because we've misunderstood the basic principle of what a marriage is actually about. It's about creating something that nobody else can do by themselves. It's about bringing two people together that nobody else can do just by themselves. And I give you this, two people have chosen obligations and expectations of each other. Let's be mature about this. You have obligations, and you have expectations, and they actually do come together. Two people admit that they're gonna fail, and it's okay. They will fail. If you get together in a marriage and think that you're not gonna fail, oh my goodness, wake up, you're gonna fail. 
but you get together and you will reconcile. Two people who are motivated by love, not by a contract. Thursday morning, I received this text from a, a friend of mine. He said, um, hey, uh, he, he loves his wife dearly, and his wife loves him dearly. They have a, a phenomenal, phenomenal marriage, and they are really, really strong. And they're really strong despite the cancer that his wife is battling for many years. Um, so he sent me this text. Uh, I haven't talked to him in years, and just out of the blue, I just received this text. He said, you and Becky blessed us this morning with a Daily Walk podcast. Eternal things are much on our minds these days. We have another chemo session this afternoon. It's an attempt to give us a little bit more time. And then he says, oh, look, I've been reading my favorite author, Ellen, and he says, I love how Ellen explains the free gift, not by works process, all right? So he, he quotes this passage that he read, which says this, all true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ, and if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our heart and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be carrying out our own impulses. The will refined and sanctified will find its highest delight in doing his service. Without consent, he does it all. And then he writes, how cool is that? Thank you for your encouraging ministry. So I sent him back a text. I said, thanks, and I'm gonna leave out his name. I wrote his name inside there. I said, I'm gonna pass this on to Becky. I said, hey, another round, brother. Courage to you guys. To see the eyes of those you love and to smell the presence in the life of those you love, to hold the embrace of those who accept you, we take those things for granted. I said, you've got to keep and treasure those things. You even have to treasure the arguments you have with the loved one. Because even the arguments means you get to make up. You need to treasure all these things. And I love you both too. He sent me a text back. He says, I love you guys too. Thank you for encouragements for being real. Look, my friends, the tree can be healed. The tree can be healed. If it's the church, it can be healed. If it's your faith, it can be healed. If it's your marriage, it can be healed. If it's your relationships with each other, it can be healed. The fruit can be good, but it is the spirit that does it, not you. Your attitude has to be motivated by the Spirit of God, not by a decision that you just make one day. You have to give your will over to God. And you have to believe in this, that change is possible and change is called for and change is expected. And that good fruit only happens when you give it all to Jesus.